Reflections on the Bible Creation, Fall, and Sacrifice by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 4 Before getting into the temple, which is the main thing for today, I want to go back to one other thing. At Jesus' baptism, just before Jesus' baptism, he hears John perform his version of deconstructing the, the patriarchal principle. John is preaching, John the Baptist is preaching, and he gets something of the same response that Jesus got in, in John 8, namely, we're sons of Abraham. And John says to them, do not start telling yourselves we're, we have Abraham for our father because I tell you God can raise up children from Abraham from these stones. You see there's another so just keep, bear that in mind that there's another kind of uh, adoption you could say that's the way Paul talks about it. There is another form of adoption where suddenly you have as your father God so that God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Another way, not the literal bloodline way. And shortly thereafter, Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan, and in one account, here are the words he hears. From heaven, a voice speaks and says, You are my son. Today I have fathered you. You see, I have fathered you. This is just like God being able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. It's another experience of fatherhood, a radical one, which Jesus is presenting as an alternative to this, to this elaborate network of patriarchal alliances and loyalties that held the social structure together in his time. I have fathered you this day. The point is that there's an, there's an abandoning of a whole a social structure based on fatherhood in favor of what Jesus is, is now uh, expressing, his intimate connection with God as his father. With God as his father, that is to say, nobody less than God, nobody in the social world, even the historical world, even the ancestors that the great Jewish ancestors were not father figures for Jesus, only God himself, which brings him out of the social drama in a very radical and profound way and puts him in touch with transcendence. And it is that which sets us free, is to have as our father, our ultimate father, uh, the God who is transcendent. And so, I'm not saying anything you don't already know, but I just wanted to connect that idea with what with with what is more explicit in the Gospels, and that is the the collision between Jesus and the temple, which is the other main paradigm. And I want to work up to that, quoting two passages in something that uh, Robert Hammond Kelly has written. If we don't understand Father in the ancient in the first century. Uh, Jewish world in a much more profound way we do not understand temple in the ancient world 
And so we have to kind of be put in touch with it. It's like reading Barbara Tuckman or something and having to go back and realize what it was like in the 14th century, you see, or get a feel for it, okay? Well, so here's, I'm going to use uh, Robert Hammer and Kelly. Here's what he says about uh, the world that Moses and his people left behind. Because Moses was performing kind of Abrahamic act too in leaving the house of his father. As I said last week, this idea of leaving, this is what Jesus does. When Jesus says, I'm, I'm saying to you what I've learned from my father and you're still stuck with the traditional one, uh, he's leaving the house of his father and, and, uh, and uh, discovering a new father. Well, Abraham did it and Moses did it because here's what, so here's what, here's what Hamilton Kelly says. One has only to stand in the great hall of the temple Amon-Ra at Karnak to be able with little imagination to appreciate the revulsion a Moses might have felt against the elaborate charade of the sacred. As a prince of Egypt, you know, Moses was well-connected and, and maybe even have been part of the court in Egypt. As a prince of Egypt, Moses may have been present when the statues of Ammon and his consort were bathed and given breakfast in a lavish ritualism that absorbed the wealth of millions and the energies of 120,000 priests. And we, in our day, we had to say, well, wait, why would they do that? Why would they do that? This is what we can't find. And if they were here, they would say, well, why have you killed two or three hundred million people in this century? And we'd say, well, we don't know. And they'd say, well, why don't you build a temple instead? You see what I mean? Why don't you, why don't you try ritual sacrifice instead? And except for the fact that ritual sacrifice has been deconstructed. The reason we don't try it is because it's been deconstructed by the, by the revelation of the cross. But you see, the point is, uh, we haven't exactly kept pace morally with the vanishing of our sacrificial apparatus. So when we read this, we think, oh, how stupid and vulgar. Uh, all these people doing, 120,000 priests performing sacrifices, you know. And... Uh, then we look around our world and see how much violence there is. Well, so then Kelly goes on. One could almost hear the sigh of relief when once in the wilderness, Moses and his followers pledged allegiance to one formless divinity and swore never again to make graven images of the kind that covered the temple walls of Egypt. The massive sacral presence of Pharaonism is a compelling backdrop and foil for the, for the Mosaic Reformation and its austere turn away from the sacred. So, if that was Moses' experience in Egypt and he walked away from it, I would say Jesus' experience in Jerusalem would correspond to that. As, remember this, the temple was built on Mount Moriah, according to Second Chronicles, and this is what had... This is what had come of Abraham's choosing a ram instead. Abraham moved from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. And now we have the temple. And here's what the temple looks like as Robert Hammer and Kelly describes it. 
It overshadowed Jerusalem and dominated the life of the city. 80% of employment in Jerusalem depended on the temple, not only on its day-to-day -day ritual needs, but also on the periodic pilgrim festivals and the ongoing building project which it constituted. 9,000 priests and Levites worked there, although not at the same time. The twice-daily official sacrifices on the vast, ever-burning altar consumed thousands of animals and forests of wood. Over it all hung a pall of smoke from burning flesh. And when the great pilgrim festivals like Passover were in full swing, the priests stood in blood, sacrificing the victims of private offering. And again, the question is, why would people do this? You see, why would people do this? And we have to say, they would only do it if it worked. And then we have to figure out what it might have, what work, working might mean, you know. If it somehow worked. Their experience was, if they stopped doing it, things would fall into chaos. I say their experience was that. Their experience was that. If they stopped, it would fall into chaos. And so they kept doing it. Now, one sign that it's ceasing to work is that it becomes uh, voracious in its appetite for victims. One sign that a sacrificial adaptation is failing is that it becomes, its appetite for more victims is insatiable. And that's what's happening in our world. We have a world where our, the, the, the forms of sacrifice that we see and don't even blink at, you see, are demand, and war is the last of them. It, it just demand more and more and more and more victims. And that means the system is not working. So, Anyway, imagine coming up over expecting to see, you know, the, the, the golden temple on the hill and seeing something that looks like, you know, belching smokestacks of burning flesh. <laughs> Suddenly you, you're put in touch with what this is all about. The temple was not fundamentally... Jesus teaches there, other people teach there. It was an enormous complex, you see. All kinds of things happened there. But at its center is this constant animal sacrifice. And so Robert Hamilton Kelly goes on, Jerusalem thrived on what today would be called the convention business. This combination of smoke, blood, and business, whose priests were in league with Roman power, to preserve their office and their landed interest was the historical reality of the sacred in the Gospel of Mark. He's, this is something he's written on the Gospel of Mark. So, there you have it. And Jesus comes over the hill and sees it. And his encounter with it Begins, and so what I want to do is to carry is to take the. Now that we've talked about the father a little bit, I'll come back to that a little bit later too. But now I want to see this this moving away from sacrifice, bring it into the New Testament, and see Jesus's encounter with the sacrificial temple. Now, for Jesus, it, it appears from the synoptics, it appears that 
when Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, he knew that he was, he was about to have his decisive encounter with the forces that had, that had repelled his message uh, every time they got the opportunity. And he was warned against going to Jerusalem because uh, that was where you were likely to really run into uh, the kind of opposition that could destroy you. But he goes straight to the temple. Now, there's a little story here that's too precious to skip over. It's not particularly relevant to what I'm trying to talk about, but I don't want to skip over it. Uh, and it's Jesus riding into town. This is the Palm Sunday thing, you know. Uh, it's Jesus riding into town uh, on the on the, the, the foal of an ass. And it's taken from Zechariah. There's a passage in Zechariah that says uh, the king comes triumphant, uh, but humble and riding on the foal of an ass. And that is brought into the New Testament and, uh, and worked into the story this way. Or is it? You know, I ask myself when I read this, it's, such a, it's so obviously one of, an example of the, of the early church reaching back, finding an, a, a passage in the scriptures and bringing it and inserting it in as a way of understanding or interpreting the Jesus uh, story. However, I must say that as I read it, and I'm, I haven't read the recent scholarship, but I'm sure that all biblical scholars uh, regard this as a concoction of the early church, and I don't, I'm not offended by that, but I must say when I read it, I get the feeling maybe there's something more to it. Because there are plenty of references to the, the, the messianic expectation of the time was Davidic. In other words, the Messiah was going to be the son of David. He was going to restore the Davidic uh, uh, throne, the Davidic dynasty. He was the, you know, the great age of uh, David and Solomon would return. Everything would be restored. It would be a great uh, triumph uh, for, for uh, uh, the Jewish religion and so on. Well, Jesus had constantly to, to contend with this expectation. And one, of, one aspect of that expectation was, was David, the, 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 Messianic, the Davidic Messiah, coming in as a, as a triumphant military leader, you see, uh, riding on a war horse. And as some of you know, Book, children's book I used to read to my children, which is an absolutely fabulous thing, although it takes liberties with the uh, New Testament tradition, has Judas, in this little story, has Judas being a zealot. Many people think he was a, a uh, political revolutionary of some sort. Ju uh, Judas is a, is a zealot who, who arranges with Jesus to come riding into Jerusalem on a war horse and says, in this little cartoon thing I used to read to my kids, and he says, I'll have the, our forces will be ready and you come up over the hill on a war horse and we'll come out of the woodwork and we'll throw these Romans out of here and uh, restore everything. And then Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. And I must say, if you read this, I'll just read it to you and see if you feel what I felt. When they were approaching Jerusalem in sight of Bethphage and Bethany, Close, to the Mount of, close by the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go off to the village facing you, and as soon as you enter it, find a tethered colt that no one has yet ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, What are you doing? Say, The master needs it, and we'll send it back directly. They went off and found a colt tethered near, the, near a door 
in an open street. They untied it. Some men standing there said, What are you doing untying that colt? They gave the answer Jesus told them, and the men let them go. Then they took the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on, on its back, and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, others greenery, which they had cut in the fields. And those who went, for, those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, so on. Well, I must say it has a feel to me of something the historical Jesus might have done. Uh, this idea of getting this colt, you see, I mean, Jesus might have come over the, the hill. I don't know, by the way, the, the terrain in Jerusalem. I'm talking about coming over the hill. I don't know how you would come in Jerusalem. But in any event, he, would, he might well have seen what was in store and made a, a, kind, of, uh, a, 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 a kind of spontaneous uh, alteration in the plan in order to get on the back of a donkey, in order to break down visually a certain expectation that he saw in the crowds that were waiting for him. I don't know. But if, if the early church found that and brought it in, that's fine too, but it, it may well have been there. The next sentence, however, is where the story that I'm interested in starts. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. They just like an arrow, straight into the temple. And then, Mark, this is in Mark's gospel, and Mark is playing with us in a certain sense because he says he entered Jerusalem and went straight into the temple, so it's very dramatic. And you think Mark, typical of Mark, he's going to get right to the point. He's not going to fuss around. He's going to get right to the point. But we won't get the point. I think Mark understands we have to get the point. So he goes right into the temple, and then he looked around, and it was late, so he left. And it's, you know, and you think, wait a minute, what happened? <laughs> I thought something big was going to happen here. And so look at what look at what Mark does. He says, next day, as they were leaving Bethany, he felt hungry, seeing a fig tree and leaf some distance away. He went to see if he could find any fruit on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he addressed the fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again, he said. And his disciples heard him say this. This, is, this last sentence is kind of funny. His disciples heard him say this. It's almost the same thing as saying they didn't quite get it. Uh, as we don't quite get it. Wait a minute. It was going to be this dramatic thing, and now... He comes upon a fig tree. It's not even in season. There are no figs on it, only leaves. And he says, it's, he says that fig tree will never produce again. Now, is that a non sequitur or what? The next sentence says, so, see, that's right there. So, they reached Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. <laughs> you see, now we get it, or we're beginning to get it. He went into the temple. The temple and the fig tree are the same thing. And the time has passed. It is no longer bearing season. You see, It is no longer bearing fruit. It has only leaves. And Jesus' presence 
is destroying its ability ever to bear fruit again. So they reached Jerusalem and he went into the temple. Now if I were if I were a high priest or one of the priests with a strong pair of binoculars on the temple wall seeing what Jesus just did to the fig tree, I would say, "Hey, don't let that guy in here." <laughs> See? Don't let him in here. He went into the temple and began driving out those who were selling and buying there. He upset tables of the money changers and the seats of the dove sellers. Nor would he allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He taught them and said, Does not scripture say, My house will be called a house of prayer for all people, but you have turned it into a bandit's den. Now, people have always thought, well, you see, what really upset Jesus was the commercial aspect of this. This is this goes way back, you know, really. But it's a kind of it's it's a kind of pre-Marxist uh, reading of the text. Uh, it is that somehow it's the com- it's the commercialization of this enterprise that uh, would be the offensive thing. When we think that Jesus was only upset about the commercial aspect of this, it, true, Jesus' concern is re- is is true devotion to God. But just because he's turning over, first of all, when you come into the temple, you, the temple was an enormous structure. You've got, you got a long way to go to get to the, the heart and soul of it. So this, the outlying uh, uh, chambers of the temple were filled with this kind of activity which was absolutely essential to the temple. You couldn't have the temple without this because all of the sacrifices were taking place there were diaspora Jews that were coming from everywhere with different coinages, you know, different... And some of them had animals with them, but most of them did not because you couldn't drive your animal that far or whatever. They were poor and they could only buy doves and so on. So this this system was set up in order to make it possible for people to have doves to offer or to buy sheep and goats to offer. They had huge pens out next to the temple where they raised these animals. Parenthetically, if I may say so, Gerard makes the point anthropologically that, that animal husbandry was was created by sacrifice. We first started raising animals because we had to have animals uh, uh, in ready for sacrificial needs and we couldn't take a chance on needing one and not having one, so we started raising them. So it wasn't economics that started animal husbandry. It was sacrifice. We turned it into economics very quickly, but nevertheless. Well, okay, so you have these huge pens of animals. You have all these doves, these aviaries of doves that were to be sold. You couldn't have it without it. So to throw them all out was to stop the operation. You see, So we shouldn't think about it as Jesus simply being offended that the sellers of trinkets had, you know, surrounded the holy place. It's something much more profound than that. He says, my house, quoting scripture, my house will be called a house of prayer for all people. And so prayer is not the same as sacrifice. Prayer and sacrifice happen together. But you, you know, in the Jewish world, prayer has replaced sacrifice. And that's, you know, contemporary Jews understand that. Prayer has replaced sacrifice, and Jesus is talking about exactly that. For all peoples, Jesus said, 
for all people, not just the circumcised, not just those who are literally descended uh, from our ancestors and so on. And then this reference to the bandit's den, you, you may know about this, this has been bandied about a little bit, uh, Josephus writing uh, in the first century uh, uh, speaks, uses this term bandits to refer to the military opponent of the Jewish extremists, we would call them extremists, zealots, uh, uh, guerrilla fighters who were opposed to Roman occupation. And these, and this, by the way, this passage is written after Jerusalem has been destroyed by Rome. There was an uprising in Jerusalem, Jewish uprising in Jerusalem, in 67, which lasted until Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. And Mark's gospel is being written for the most part after that, and that was such a devastating event for everybody, Christians and Jews alike, that uh, it became central. So a lot of this story is written back into the story. But on the other hand, it's pretty clear that Jesus had a confrontation with the temple, a direct confrontation with the temple, and that he saw his ministry as being uh, in, uh, in, uh, in contest with the temple. Well, the reason I mention this thing about the bandits is because the zealots, the word means zealots for Josephus, the zealots actually at the, in the last stages of that uprising took over the temple and turned it into a, an armed fortress and held out there against the Romans, and they were finally destroyed as the Romans were coming in to destroy the temple and all of Jerusalem. So there may be some reference here to turning it into a bandit's den, not just that they were commercializing it, because this word doesn't mean commercial people, it means uh, hot-headed zealots. And there don't seem to be any of those right there, but Mark is probably referring to the fact that it became that uh, just before it was destroyed. After Jesus' prophetic act, this would be what you would call a prophetic act, namely acts such as those performed by the prophets which were meant to convey a larger message. They're symbolic of something else. And Jesus is turning over the tables of the money changers and so on is a prophetic act. And so after that, uh, we have this passage in Mark. This came to the ears of the chief priests and scribes, and they tried to find some way of doing away with him. They were afraid of him because the people were carried away by his teaching. And when evening came, he went out of the city. And this carried away, translated sometimes in one uh, translation, spellbound or hypnotized, it's important that we not think that that means that they were converted by what he was saying. They were carried away. Uh, And what I would like to point out about that idea of being carried away, because remember that these are the same people that are going to demand his crucifixion soon enough. And the story that I often invoke of of the Toltec story of Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca, you know, Tezcatlipoca comes into town and he's so dazzling that pretty soon everybody is carried away by him and they're following him and everything. And suddenly the valence reverses on their fascination with him and they kill him. And I I think that's exactly the way it is in this story. So there is a kind of uh, intense fascination with what Jesus is doing 
clearly from our point of view, what Jesus is saying is worthy of their, of a more wholehearted kind of loyalty. But for the moment, all that's happening is that they're fascinated by this dazzling figure. The reason I mention that is because the question, because it says here that the that the uh, priests and scribes, the priests and scribes are the are the are the uh, functionaries of the system that is centered on the temple. So these are the people that have most at stake in Jesus's confrontation with the temple, and they would have gotten rid of him, but the people they were afraid of the people. So. In verses that follow shortly after that, we have this. They came to Jerusalem again, and Jesus was walking in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and elders came to him and said, What authority have for you for acting like this? Or who gave you authority to act like this? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question, just one. Answer me, and I will tell you my authority for acting like this. John's baptism. What was its origin, heavenly or human? Answer me that. And they argued this way among themselves. If we say heavenly, he will say, then why did you refuse to believe in him? But dare we say human? They had the people to fear, for everyone held that John had been a real prophet. So their reply to Jesus was, we do not know. And Jesus says, well, since you don't tell me, I'm not going to tell you. But see what's happening here? At a slightly deeper level, what's happening is they are asking Jesus to declare his authority. What is his real authority for doing this? And in rebuttal, he he turns the question back on them and forces them to declare to the readers of the gospel, at least, what their authority is. And their authority is always, who, who do you fear? Who are you living your life in fear of? And who are they living their life in fear of? The crowds. Their authority fundamentally is the crowd. They have power because the crowd has given them power. The crowd will do what they say. And their power is the power to give the crowd direction. And if they say something that destroys that power, they have no power. They have no authority. The authority is, is mimetically constructed authority. It's the crowd looking at them and being willing to do what they say, being willing to, to take their, what, their words or gestures as models for their own. You see, when Jesus comes in and, and, uh, try, and the fig tree withers in his presence, you have an example of what's going to happen every time he comes into contact with the sacralized structures and its representatives. Their power withers in his presence. It discloses itself, it reveals itself, deconstructs itself in his presence. Or I would say at least the gospel story. In the gospel story, every time there's an encounter between Christ and the sacralized system in any of its manifestations, the system is deconstructed. And here, were you to ask the the uh, priests and scribes, what, the, what, what was the source of their power? They would have all kinds of theological and scriptural responses. But the gospel deconstructs it. The source of their power is mimetic, and it's the mob. 
And that's why they don't do something. They don't, they're afraid to act. Well, that means they must be cowering before some other authority. What is the authority before which they're cowering? The crowd. Just as Pilate and Herod, we'll get to that next week, cower before the same authority. Ultimately, the authority is the crowd, and nobody knows that except the Gospels. You see, one of the things in Mark, for example, there's this thing called the Messianic secret. In Mark, Jesus, there's a thing about Jesus doesn't want the mess, the, his Messianic mission to be, to be talked about abroad, you know. So he kind of says, don't talk about this. Just a few people know about it. Let's not talk about it. So it remains a Messianic secret. And that's sort of one of the conundrums of Mark's gospel. But in a much larger and more pervasive sense, there is another kind of secret that, sh- that, that, that is shot through all of cultural life. And that is the real authority is the mob. And that those who are, who, uh, are the titular uh, leaders are really there because they, that what they say or do will have effects on the mob. And they know it, the people who've, at least the people who've had to work to get there, know that that's the case. And if, and if for some reason they lose that ability, they would be very easily become the designated ones to die at the mob's next frenzied uh, episode. As you know, I've tried to show in earlier sessions, anthropologically, the earliest manifestation of authority comes as the, as the mob folk, uh, uh, visits its violence on its victim. Just before the violence crushes the victim, the victim has immense what we would call prestige. That is to say, everybody is totally fascinated by the, by the shimmering power of this, of this person whom they're trying to drive out of their community. And if he can forestall his own victimization for a few minutes, he might be able to accrue enough power to be able to forestall it for a long time. And he can forestall it for a long time by offering the crowd a surrogate victim instead. And then you have you go from victimization to monarchy. Now, you, obviously, human beings didn't go that quickly. But the point is that the, that the power is in the mob, is transferred to the victim, and the victim, if he exploits the, the transference uh, cleverly enough, can become the king. And then all he has to do is sacrifice, uh, is to satisfy the sacrificial appetite of the crowd uh, periodically whenever it gets wetted by social tensions. And then he can remain uh, as a king. But then, of course, in many cultures, ancient cultures, he's sacrificed regularly himself. But what I'm trying to say here is not to get into anthropology, but just to say that this question about who is the authority and where does your authority come from uh, is... Uh, has ancient roots, and here Jesus is the victim. The gospel, the evangelist knows that Jesus is the victim, and he's gone to the site, he's gone to the sacrificial shrine as the victim. And the people who run that shrine are saying to him, "Where's your authority?" And he's showing in response to that where theirs is, which is with the crowd. Well, I, that's. That's far from a very exhaustive treatment of that theme, but since it, it, it comes in there a little bit, I thought I'd mention it at least. 
Okay, just one more thing, and then we'll go back to the temple story. This is really a temple story too, but it's the parable in Mark 12 where Jesus begins to speak to him. And, and of course, it's relevant to what has just gone on, the clash at the temple. And it's the parable of the vineyard. And Jesus says, A man planted a vineyard, he fenced it round, dug, a, uh, dug out a trough for the wine press and built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants and went abroad. When the time came, you know this, but I'm just going to read it to you. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. They seized the man, thrashed him, and sent him away empty-handed. Next, he sent another servant to them. Him they beat about the head and, and treated shamefully. And he sent, sent another, and him they killed. Then a number of others, and they thrashed some and killed the rest. He had still someone left, his beloved son. Now, this corresponds, this is in all the synoptics, this corresponds to the, to the, to the death of the prophets. When Jesus says, you've killed the prophets since the foundation of the world. Uh, this, this is what's being invoked here. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is, the prophetic truth has been trying to break in on this cult for a long, long time, and all the prophets have been killed. Now, of course, all the prophets hadn't been killed. Many of the prophets had been mistreated and shunned and marginalized, and some had been killed. But clearly, and we're not just talking about the canonical prophets, clearly a lot of people who had, who had, uh, who had uh, railed against uh, the cult as an, as, an act, as an idolatrous institution had met with a sad fate. So that's what this is all about. So then Jesus says, well, he had one more, which was his beloved son. He sent him last of all, thinking they will respect my son. But those tenants said to each other, this is an heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So now, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and make an end of the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So that's Jesus saying this, that, it's like the withering of the fig tree. He comes in and says, the game is up. The cult is over. Uh, this, and of course, this is being written at a time when the, Christ, the Christian mission was becoming, reaching into, Gentile, into the Gentile world. Other people are going to be given this treasure, which has heretofore been enclosed inside the Jewish tradition. And then the famous quotation from scripture have you not read the text of scripture the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this is the lord's doing and we marvel at it so and i should read the next verse and they would have liked to arrest him because they realized that the parable was aimed at them but they were afraid of the crowd same same thing so they left him alone and went away the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's the the stone that the builders rejected is the victim. You see, if if Gerard's premise about culture, culture and cultural life is right, which I think it is, then culture is always regenerated at the expense of its victim. So the, there's always a rejected stone that makes culture possible. And suddenly, I mean, we we still have to get the feel of the power of this. Uh, quotation, suddenly the rejected stone has become the cornerstone. So the next time you're, you know, next time you're 
having a social visit with your friends and you're wagging your heads about the world's falling apart and and going to hell in a handbasket and your friends say well, you know what is going on you know has have has the educational system fallen down or are parents not being good any parents anymore or do do we need to elect a republican or a democrat or whatever it is you can just say well the the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and they'll say what and you'll say well why don't you come to Gill's class? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, you know, what happens when you try to build a culture? You don't... Here's the thing. You can't build a conventional culture on that. You have to build a community. You can't build an order, a cultural order, using this rejected stone as the cornerstone. You can only build a community, uh, a non-sacrificial community, because as soon as it becomes sacrificial, it begins to deconstruct, it begins to self-criticize. To the extent that the, the stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone, to the extent that that is true and not just, uh, you know, not just something we say, then every time the community that has, has that as its cornerstone performs a sacrificial act, uh, it hears the cock crow and and goes into some some form of uh, dissolution and has to and has to reorient itself and recommit itself to the to the stone the builders rejected as their cornerstone and so on so that's that's the that's the destabilized nature of culture after this event and what's so striking is, is that the gospel actually talks this way. You know what I mean? That's what I find so striking, that, it, that Jesus says things about the Father. He deconstructs the conventional idea of Father and all of its ramifications in the ancient world. We know nothing of that because we've, in our, we're, our world is so, is so empty of the Father principle. I mean, not that we don't have a few lingering problems with patriarchy, but by and large, there's nothing left. You know, we fathers are in the worst position. Right? We're—I mean, it's the biggest joke. We're since the '50s, all the funniest jokes are always told about the father. We're all Dagwood, you know. And so, the father principle in our world is just in a mess. You know, so we can't even understand what it must have been like in the first century when it was the reigning premise. And Jesus is deconstructing it. And uh, that's very powerful. And it's explicit over and over and over again in the gospel. And the same thing with temple. We don't realize what temple was. Temple was this massive thing. It's deconstructing it. And then you get these things like the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay, I want to wrap up uh, coming back to the fig tree temple connection. Next morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered to the roots. Next morning. <coughs> you know, another shaggy dog story. When I was in uh, college, I got a summer job working with a, two ex-convicts <laughs> um, clearing 
clearing the right-of-way for power lines out in the boondocks in East Tennessee, which means we had to go in and cut these small trees down and trim the big ones and 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 kill a lot of things. And there's some trees, you you we had to kill them with this. God knows what the chemical was. I mean, this is before I knew anything about ecological things. And it was hot. I didn't wear a shirt, you know, and I put this tank on my back, this metal tank on my back. It leaked, you know, blistered my back. God knows what was in it. You take the little thing and pump it like this, and you go around to these trees six inches in diameter, and you spray around the bottom of those those babies, and you come back about three days later, and they're just dead. I don't know. I don't know why... No, no, I don't know why I'm not a goner. Anyway, not to mention the social setting in which this was taking place, which was another, probably even more hazardous to my health. <laughs> Any event, I don't know that came. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. But the next morning, this is what made me think about it, because I would go by and that, well, suddenly here was this thing dead. Well, the next morning, the fig tree withered to its roots. Now, this is not talking about fig trees. (laughs) You see, it's still talking about temple. The next morning, it's withered to its roots. Now, that's very radical. That's like it's dead. But remember now, the paraclete works gradually. So the, the event, the Christ event is decisive once and for all. Once and for all. Never has to be updated. This is the thing. We can close the canon. We don't have to have anything else. This is this is the Christian. This is Christian faith. This is totally decisive. All we have to do is live out the ramifications of this revelation. We have everything here. But it happens gradually. But it doesn't happen in the story gradually because the evangelist wants to tell us the evangelist is taking an eschatological position here. It is withered to its roots the next morning. It takes 10,000 years for all the leaves to fall off, you see, or whatever you want to say. But the next morning, it's withered to its roots. Peter remembered, Look, Rabbi, he said to Jesus, the fig tree that you cursed has withered away. Now we get a little bit of the, of the historical aspect of it, withering away. Jesus answered, have faith in God. Well, now he answers more, which seems a little more responsive. But right away you say, wait a minute. Peter said, look, it withered. And Jesus says, have faith in God. Have faith. Have faith. You see, again, we don't get it. Because we don't see that the word faith here is in tension with what the fig tree represents, which is the temple. Have faith in God. And then he goes on to say, In truth, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be pulled up and thrown into the sea with no doubt in his heart, but believing that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Now let's go back and read that sentence again. If anyone says to this mountain, what mountain is he talking about? 
the Temple Mount. So this is in fact responsive not to the question about the fig tree, but the whole thing the fig tree represents, which is the Temple. If anyone says, so could the, could, see the question is not could you wither a fig tree overnight, but could you wither the Temple, this enormous historical and architectural behemoth could it be deconstructed overnight? And so Jesus says, if anyone says to this mountain, he's not talking about Mount Tamil Pius. He's talking about the Temple Mount. If anyone says to this, says to this mountain, be pulled up and thrown into the sea, no, with no doubt in his heart, but believing that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. I tell you there, so, so when he says have faith, he's talking about what you, what's going to replace the temple. And he says, I tell you therefore, everything you ask and pray for, believe that you already have it and it will be yours. Now, this, this verse doesn't, this verse goes to a deeper level than what I'm talking on right now because I'm just talking now about the business of the Abrahamic act of moving on out of sacrifice. But it's very powerful to me that it's clear to me as I read the gospel anyway that Jesus is, po- is posing faith as an alternative to sacrifice as the religious center of one's life. And in that regard, he's very much in keeping with the prophets who said something very similar to that. But then this line, everything you ask for and pray for, believe that you have it already and it will be yours. Now that's puzzling and some people might even laugh at it. You know, Can you imagine how many jokes you could make up along that line? There's probably a whole bunch of jokes you could make up about that verse. Funny jokes. But there is something really unbelievably powerful about that. Now, does that mean that he thinks the temple is going to literally move off that mountain and fall into the sea? No, but he says, anyone who says to the mountain, disappear with no doubt in his heart, but believing that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. It's possible to extricate oneself from this thing by faith. And then he adds one other thing which has to be added, I think. And when you stand in prayer, forgive whatever you have against anybody so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your failings too. Now, what does that have to do with anything? The, what it has to do with, I mean, in a way, it's Jesus, the, 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 the Mark and Jesus, contemplating the enormity of the Abrahamic task that he's set for himself. The enormity of the task is to, is to take this enormous sacrificial apparatus which is built on the, on the mountain where Abraham refused to sacrifice his son and sacrificed a ram instead 
and is consumed with the smoke of burning animal flesh to move that whole thing out of the way so that the journey can go on. And he's contemplating that, that, that the scope of that move. And he says, you must have faith, you must pray, and then you must forgive. And it's, it's in a way astonishing that forgiveness gets in there because it's, you don't need it. In a way, you don't need it for him to be responsive to Peter, his question from Peter. But you need it in order to understand what, you, what it takes to live without sacrifice. Prayer, faith, and forgiveness. And that's the part we don't get because when Jesus says, or when the gospel tells us, when the gospel tells us that the fig tree withered by the next morning, uh, and then later on says it's withering away, when the gospel tells us that the fig tree withers away or is withering away, it's talking about something that is happening no matter what we do. It's happening in the world. It's, outside, it's, it's out of our hands. It can't be stopped. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's sweeping the world. And more and more the sacrificial structures are going to break down. The first sign that they're breaking down is that they demand more and more victims. So the first symptom of their collapse is that they become voracious. So it's like the Aztecs and it's like the sacrificial shrine that, that uh, Robert Hammer and Kelly described in the passage I quoted and so on. But that's breaking down. That's withering away no matter what we do. question is, can we live without it, without becoming murderous? Cain tried to, tried to move away from the sacrificial apparatus too quickly. He became a murderer. The sacrificial apparatus is dissolving. Can we cope with its, with its disillusionment uh, without resorting to worse violence? And I would say the gospel right here says, here's how you do it. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness. And on the question, I'll end on this, the question of of this process happening, happening gradually, there's one more passage that I want to quote to that's, that's uh, in the vicinity of these in Mark's gospel. Jesus in the gospel several places says we must not cause scandal. And Gerard has been so perceptive on this word scandal. He, he said, look, that's really at the heart of it. If you want to understand Jesus, you have to understand what he what he's worried about with scandal. When we become scandal, scandal means to, uh, to uh, stumbling block, to trip over something, but it, it has an obsessional aspect to it so that when we're scandalized, it's like we, we get caught up in some little melodrama and, it's, and it's obs- it, we obsess over it. And when we begin to obsess, we produce, uh, we produce uh, a, a kind of scapegoating reflex in ourselves and others that, that eventually becomes irrepressible and so so jesus says you must not scandal says to his people who are going out to carry his message we must not scandalize 
he says there's a fundamental scandal that that is part of this and part of the scandal of course is that this whole sacrificial apparatus has to go but we must try to communicate that in such a way that nobody's scandalized by it. Because if they're scandalized, they'll just freeze into some sacrificial uh, pose, uh, you know, like Lot's wife looking back, and nothing will come of it. So we have to make it, you know, we have to try to avoid that. So Mark writes in his Gospel, so this is when they were talking about authority and so on. So one of the scribes comes up to Jesus and says, uh, "Let me pursue the matter further. Which is the first and uh, which is the first of all the commandments?" And Jesus replied, "This is the first. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God is one, is the one only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this: you must love your neighbor as yourself." There is no commandment greater than these. So these are the great, two great commandments. The scribe said to him, Well spoken, Master. What you have said is true. And then he more or less repeats what Jesus just said. What you have said is true, that God is one and there is no other, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, this is far more important than any burnt offering or sacrifice. Jesus, seeing how wisely he had spoken, said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more. Now, if we just go back and try to posit a historical kernel for this, no one dared ask him any questions anymore means two things number one they wanted to and number two they didn't dare that there was something there was some poignancy about that moment that was that was intellectually puzzling but was of a kind that kept them from asking questions and then if we go back and say what could it have been it's very straightforward Jesus is preaching He's talking about authority. He's exuding his own authority. He's withering fig trees and overturning temple furniture. And then he's in dialogue with these people who are the authorities on religion. And one of them says to him, What's, what are the basic rules of life? And he says, well, you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And you love your neighbor as yourself. And on the basis of Jesus' ministry larger ministry this guy says okay i think that's right you love god with all your heart mind and soul love your neighbor as yourself this is far more important than any burnt offering or sacrifice jesus said nothing about that but this man got it you see jesus is the one who's not trying to cause scandal he's just preaching the truth it's the truth that will set you free the truth is that the purpose of life is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. You don't have to go around condemning every sacrificial structure in sight. All you have to do is announce that truth. It's a, it's an, it's a biblical truth 
It's not a it's not a profoundly new truth. Jesus simply embodied it. He just that's the truth. But what's so interesting here is this guy recognized its incompatibility with the sacrificial system. That the sacrificial system is 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 a useless appendage if those are the only two rules. And he articulates that. And that's the moment when Jesus says, you are very close to the kingdom of God. Because, and I would say, what makes that such a dramatic moment is because this man saw the connection. So it didn't have to be an explicit attack on the sacrificial system. To me, what it says is... is uh, the effective dismantling of sacrificial apparatus begins with the articulation of the two great commandments. And sooner or later, the nickel will drop. Because after all, the sacrificial apparatus that we in our generation have, it's our responsibility to, to, uh, to dismantle and humanize is always going to be different from what our ancestors had to take apart. We don't have the Jerusalem temple. Uh, we don't have the crusades. We don't have the inquisition. We have our form of, of it. And our ancestors will have their form. But th- this passage s- says to me, you don't have to worry about the form. To the extent that you can come to, come to understand that the purpose of life, you see, for me... I, you, you've probably suspected this all along, but for me it all goes back to the Baltimore Catechism. <laughs> to know, love, and serve God in this world. <laughs> um, it, it all comes to the, to the uh, Great Commandments. And if, if one comes to understand the truth of the Great Commandments, the deconstruction of the sacrificial apparatus will take place in due course. It's an inevitable effect of focusing on the two great commandments. So, so Anya's right, I'm not that convincing. <laughs> but anyway, the Gospels are, and I'm just... <laughs> and th- this exercise we're going through here is to... Um, it's to, it's just a refresher course, partly due to the fact that it's, it's uh, we're coming up on Holy Week, and I every every year as Holy Week approaches, I I find myself bending to its themes, no matter what we're talking about. Well, next week, what I want to do is look at the crucifixion, and um, and then as the end of sacrifice. And then the week after, the final week in this little series, I want to focus on the contemporary scene to try to understand a little better the the kind of sacrificial crisis we are in. Because the first century was in a sacrificial crisis. And uh, we humans almost always are. 
and and uh, we certainly are in our time. So I, after we look at the crucifixion next week and then come into the into our world the week after and look at the nature of the crisis that we're living in.